I'd like to uh, apologize well in advance on this one. There's some episodes I like, or love, I should say, because they are great character pieces, um, like Inner Light or Tapestry or In the Pale Moonlight or Duet. And then there's episodes I love because of how much they influence the setting, like uh, Bravely the Bold or whatever the name of that episode is, or, you know, Best of Both Worlds. But then there's episodes I love just because they're really good. And there's not anything else. Like, this isn't a setting changer. It doesn't really inform the characters. It's just a really good episode. This is among my favorite Star Trek episodes, like, ever. And re-watching this, as I've said many times, going back through these episodes has given me differing perspectives and thoughts on these episodes, and sometimes completely changed my opinions on them when I go through them with analysis mode on. But this episode is even better than I thought it was. I was expecting to complain about it more, but I only have two complaints. They're both on the second page here. But basically, I'm going to be gushing about this episode a little bit and going into a little bit more detail than I usually do. Funnily enough, there's not a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on this one. This is a Braga piece. And now, I do want to mention something. Usually when I talk about a writer for an episode of Star Trek, I don't always succeed. But I try to make the point clear that there's actually more than one writer involved in a script. It is very rare that one writer comes up with the story idea, puts out the four or five versions of the script, and then does the actual teleplay, right? This is one of those exceptions. Bronn and Braga wrote this episode front to back. And I mentioned that because I have a weird feeling that this is the kind of stuff that Braga really... This is basically him and his element. Taking an idea and a concept and just kind of running with it through the familiar characters that he knows. This is also interesting because a lot of other episodes I happen to really like from Braga tend to follow this same format. I'll be mentioning one later. I forget if it's season six or seven. But there's another episode like this that'll be coming up um, that I can't think of the name of. It's Time Something. You know, Romulan Ship, Frozen Time, that one. He's good at this kind of thing. And it's good to play to your strengths. You know what I mean? This is also an episode directed by Jonathan Frakes. And as I've said many times before, I'm actually quite a fan of the man's directing style. The man really knows how to use a camera and how to pull energy into a scene and how to showcase things in basically non-standard manners. Now, <laughs> I also technically have to give credit to Brenna, uh, Rick Berman on this one. And I know what you're thinking, why? Well, Rick Berman said, uh, made it very adamantly clear, it'll be dangerously repetitive by definition, and I thought it would be misinterpreted like a clip show. So I made it very clear to Jonathan, Frakes, that he couldn't use any footage again. Everything had to be photographed again and done in a slightly different way. Now you're probably thinking, well, that's awesome, and that makes perfect sense. And you're right. That is absolutely the right call. The reason I'm not sure if Rick Berman deserves credit for that call is because that's what everyone was saying. Even people who weren't actually working on this episode all had the same thoughts. You need to do each scene differently to showcase the variance, otherwise you're just going to lose the audience and it's going to look like a clip show if you reuse footage. And Frakes himself said that too. In fact, Frakes spent quite a while really working with and thinking about exactly how he was going to make this one work. And as it happens, by coincidence, Frakes had more time to do setup on this one thanks to the break they were going through at the time. So, at least Berman recognized the truth of the matter. I'll give him that, if, even if it wasn't directly his call. 
This is, in my opinion, one of, if not the best cold opens in Star Trek history. Quick reminder, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the cold open is the episode starts and then something happens and then it cuts to the opening title. It's a very common thing in television. In fact, I'm pretty sure television shows still do that to this very day, even though TV has fundamentally changed as a medium over the last 20 years. And the cold open's old job was to grab the attention of whoever's watching it. And it usually had to serve dual purpose. It either has to grab the attention of people who are just flipping through channels or left the channel on. In other words, people who are not Star Trek fans. And it also needs to grab the attention of Star Trek fans who are watching this, you know, and, and are actually here to watch Star Trek. So it's got to fulfill both of those purposes. And I've talked many, many times over the years at this point about the difference between a good cold open, a bad cold open, and the usage of time. This cold open is very short. And it is very to the point. It starts off right as the Enterprise is being destroyed. Interesting point of note. The Bozeman, the Rift, and the Collision are not shown at all. We actually cut in right after those events. All we see is the Enterprise is spiraling out of control, and the people are panicking trying to deal with it, and then... Oh, wrong hand. And then the Enterprise is destroyed. Cut to title. That is a brilliant... Brilliant cold open. Anybody watching this for the first time who doesn't know what Star Trek is is going to be like, oh my god. You know, because it's a big action, attention-grabbing scene. Anybody who has watched Star Trek before is going to be thinking, okay, what? Is this a possible future? Is this a time travel thing? Because these are not new concepts. And there's no way they just destroyed the Enterprise D. And if I might go one step further... Anyone who is really a geek, who is actually really into Star Trek, would probably notice that the destruction of the Enterprise was different than it's been every other time it's been shown. If you don't understand what I mean by that, usually when you're blowing up a ship uh, at this era, you don't actually destroy the expensive, hard-to-make model. Uh, basically, the moment it's destroyed, they do, they do make a physical explosion, you know, uh, practical effects, and then the explosion is superimposed over the model, and it kind of just engulfs it. But here they actually show the Enterprise breaking apart in pieces, and it looks differently immediately, even if you're just not, you know, not paying too much attention, you could tell the distinction. But that's because they actually did destroy a model of the Enterprise-D. They came up with a new Galaxy-class model for this and actually blew it up. And the difference shows. Fun side story. They actually took the pieces from this explosion and kept them for later, which they ended up using for the Odyssey over in DS9 in the episode Jem'Hadar. Keep touch there. So, great cold open, right? <clears throat> Grabs your attention. And then, and then we cut to the Enterprise flying through space as if nothing happened. And at this point, the mystery starts to build. And, any, and I remember, I'm sitting there with my mom. By this point, I'm sitting next to her, not like on the floor. And we're like, okay, do you think it's time? And we start debating right there. Do you think it's time travel? Do you think it was a holodeck program? Do you think it was something Q did, you know? And Mum points out rightfully, well, given the name of the episode, because it shows right there cause and effect, it's probably some kind of time travel thing. And so now we're going to show how we get to that point, and then we're going to have to prevent it from happening. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Neither of us accurately guessed that this was a Groundhog Day episode, which, funny note, Groundhog Day actually came out a year after this episode. But I do want to point out something interesting. Uh, this came up recently when we were playing a game. I'm not going to spoil the game. Uh, on stream. And several of us mentioned, the me and my viewers both mentioned the same idea. That Groundhog Day episodes tend to be good. 
Like, it's, it's kind of strange, and it's probably because they're so rare, because there aren't that many Groundhog Day episodes or games or shows or movies out there. But most of the ones that are done tend to be interesting or engaging, and it's mostly because there's so much you can do with that format, and it's so difficult to do, so it kind of forces you to do it properly. Like, you really can't do a clip show thing with this. You really do have to show variations in each step. Otherwise, it's just straight repetition. And, of course, this episode does the same thing. In fact, I kept track for all four loops that we see on camera, technically five, but all four primary loops we see on camera to kind of showcase some of the differences we see each time. It is worth noting, in case it's not obvious, that each time they go through a different loop, they're recording a new scene. The actors are coming back into the same positions and saying similar lines in similar ways with slight variations each time and new camera work. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, very engaging idea to begin with. And then they talk about how they're exploring the Typhon Expanse. And it's like, okay, that's going to be the issue. There's some kind of space who's it, what's it that's causing this, right? And that's not... That far out of bounds. <clears throat> and then they cut to playing poker. Now, I've actually mentioned before how I like the addition of poker to TNG. I think it was a good move. And I think it's a great element to have a nice, simple, human, down-to-earth perspective on a lot of the characters and the way they interact with each other, you know, not in a professional environment. What's funny, though, the poker thing, and this is according to Joe Minoski as well, who was kind of also involved in this episode a little bit. But uh, according to most people, the poker thing was always done as a form of padding. Now, to be clear, I, would I wouldn't call this padding by my own definition because padding is universally a bad thing. This would just be filling out an episode. In short, when every now and again when the runtime was a little shorter than it needed to be, oftentimes they would lean on the poker game to help fill out the episode. And most of the time, those poker games are good because they inform the characters or they showcase the, the interactions of them or how they're moving or changing, blah, 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 blah. In other words, the poker games are usually used to good effect. This actually just happened in The Outcast, where we had the poker game as a purpose of showcasing what the other characters thought about the gender issue, for good and for bad. In short, that was put in to make the episode work, or the episode fill out, but I think it worked rather than simply being dry padding. My opinion, of course. Either way, adding in poker here, now, the, I don't know if any viewers caught on to this, and if you did, please feel free, but the point is, everyone assumed that the poker stuff would be assumed to be padding. It was something to fill out the episode. And so it was kind of a deliberate thing put in to make the audience go, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to wait around a bit until we get to the actual plot. And yet, as is shown, and as is shown, and as is shown, and as is shown, the poker thing is actually integral to the plot, and therefore is the absolute opposite definition of, of padding. It's basically main story happening. So, <clears throat> the first time through here, I, I'm going to call this the first time through, even though it's our second, just to make this very clear. Uh, the first time through, they Frakes uses a lot of changing static angles and sharp shots. So, for example, I, I can't visually demonstrate because I... I'm not, I don't edit these like that, but imagine if the camera angle's on this, and it's just a straight picture, uh, an unmoving, it's, it's on a stand, basically, and the camera's on Riker, and then it cuts over, and then it's on Data, and then it cuts to on Worf, like those kind of shots, right? Now, that's a typical shot. That's actually very normal for television at this point in time to do. So, in other words, it's more or less li deliberately designed 
to not draw your attention, to look like this is just another poker game, just another episode. They also like to start, apparently, well, I'll talk more about this later, but they started using a bungee camera, which is kind of a neat concept. But anyways, and then there's a nice little bit where Riker accuses Data of stacking the deck. That's clever, Braga. I'll give you that. So Riker then bluffs. Now, this is another clever thing. First of all, Crusher had a feeling he was going to bluff. That is actually the very first inference of the deja vu effect, which I'm going to call that for simplicity, even though I know deja vu doesn't work that way. But that's what the episode calls it, and I don't know what else to call it. We can call it the echo effect, I guess? Sure, we'll call it the echo effect. So that's the first time we see a little bit of the echo effect, is Crusher knowing to call his bluff. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, how do you know he, she didn't just call his bluff? It's actually a character point that Riker is one of the best poker players, specifically because of his bluffing skills on the show. In fact, that was a character point back in Best of Both Worlds Part 1, if you remember. Another good usage of poker, when he was actually beaten at poker uh, by Commander Shelby through a bluff. It's, it's, and so I'm not making this up, and it did, indeed, the writers themselves put this forward. The idea is Riker's really good at bluffing. So how did she know he was bluffing? I point this out because this is the kind of attention to detail that goes into this episode. They even show his bluff, because what he does is Worf looks at him, 50, and Riker looks at him and allows himself to grin a little bit and then puts visible effort into removing the smile. In case you're not catching it, that's the bluff. He is trying to show, he's trying to pretend that he has a good hand, but no, I can't show it, because most people, when they think of bluff, they think of straight-faced, no expression. Thus, he is using that perception as his method of bluffing. Very lovely details like that in this episode, and I definitely credit the, the, the smash-bang combo of Braga and Frakes for a lot of these. So, I told you I'm going to be gushing a lot in this episode. I warned you. I warned you. So, <clears throat> Crusher knows, and she's like, oh, this is weird. And, you know, we kind of go through the, the, the motions a little bit with Jordy. What's funny is the Jordy thing is basically just kind of there. At this point in time, in the first loop through, it doesn't mean anything. Jordy's just having issues, and then she sorts it out, and then we move on. And then she goes and starts pruning her, her plant. Now, again, this is very well constructed because, A, Jordy's visor thing is not only going to be critical to the plot, just like the poker game, but will also be a thing that helps them to figure out what's going on. And, B, and this is very important, it is wonderfully impactful on the pacing of the episode. The episode starts off at a full-tilt sprint in terms of pacing. Enterprise destroyed. Boom. Then we have the usual Captain's Log info dump, which serves the purpose it's supposed to, giving you the basics of what's going on. And then we cut to Tuesday, right? Like nothing special. It's the main cast playing poker. And then Jordy's having a minor issue. And then Crusher's, you know, snipping away at her plant. Absolutely mundane stuff. And yet all of these points are going to be coming up more and more as actual relevance. So it services plot and it services pacing. Brilliant. Now, this also adds a little bit to the tension. Now, I tried to look up the proper terms for these and I failed. Please forgive me. But there's three types of general, well, I think there's three types of general tension when it comes to suspense 
this is going back to Hitchcock is where I remember this. Although I actually specifically looked for Hitchcock's you know take, takes on tension and suspense, and I couldn't find anything. So whatever. It boils down to this: there's the audience, there's the character. So there's audience knows, character doesn't. There's audience knows, character knows, and then there's character knows, audience doesn't. These are the three types of suspense and tension. I've actually talked about this before. And I could probably spend an entire video just talking about the difference between those three types and how each of them can be used to generate suspense and tension. But the point is, here, this is a definite case of audience knows, character doesn't. All we see is the occasional bits of deja vu, which is our first hint onto what's happening. So we know that they either have been destroyed or are going to be destroyed, and they don't know anything at this point. Then she lies down, and I wrote it down, at 8 minutes and 14 seconds is the first time something goes wrong in this episode, where the pace starts to pick back up with the voices incident. And she's like, oh my gosh, voices. And she knocks over the glass. Oh. And she's like, huh. And notice she doesn't really do anything. It's just like, I guess that's not a big deal. Okay, whatever. Then we see our first shot of what I'm going to call the crisis, just to make this simplistic. Um, and the crisis, now we see exactly what happened last time because we see the lead-up to the explosion. We see the rift, we see the Bozeman, which is the, other, the name of the other ship. We see it collide, and it collides directly with the nacelle when they don't have shields on. Yeah, that would destroy a ship. <laughs> that, that actually makes perfect sense, so credit to, to Braga on that. Ship goes out of control, and... Now, I wanted to point out two things. I actually jotted these down here. It takes 30 seconds from the ship appearing to it colliding, and then an additional 44 seconds for death. Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, that means it is a minute and 14 seconds between when the crisis first appears and they are completely destroyed. Now, I give credit to that because that is actually a very small period of time, relatively speaking. And this is, and I, I don't mean to bash on Voyager, but this is exactly one of the things that bugged me so much about some of Voyager's crises. And I'm definitely putting that in quote-unquote if you're listening to the MP3 and not watching this. Because they would have things happen, and then they would just kind of meander around. Sir, I might recommend we decide to do this about that and such and such. Well, okay, I guess we can do this and such and such. And the whole time there's no feeling of any danger. By contrast, here, the ship is hit, and then for 44 seconds the crew is frenetically frantically trying to solve this situation as quickly as they can. Also, fun little fact, this is the first reference to the ejection of the warp core in the series, something that will happen much more, more frequently in later shows. So they're like, oh, God, what do we do? Eject the warp core, try to shut it down. Um, okay, people need to get to escape pods right now. Flames are already coming through. The ship is spiraling out of control. We're barely dealing with it, and we're dead. You might think that 44 seconds sounds like a long time, and, and it's a valid thing to say. But for those 44 seconds, everyone is running around like rabbits, or like, like chickens with their head cuts off, trying to deal with this problem. Actually, that's unfair. It's not chickens with their head cuts off. Because this is a well-oiled machine. All of them are very professionally, very precisely trying to deal with this dilemma. And then they're dead. Cut to commercial. <laughs> One final way this episode is brilliant 
Each loop serves as uh, a, a typical act. And I don't mean the three-act structure. I mean the five-act structure that Star Trek uses. Basically, there are mandatory commercial breaks built into Star Trek, and there have been since forever. And so you always, when you're writing a script for Star Trek, at least back in the day, you had to write with those pauses in mind. You always had to have that mentality in mind. And I've pointed out, pointed out several times, both good and bad, you know, fade to blacks, right? I'm, I'm never, I, I'm never gonna forgive that fade to black over on DS9. You know the one. I'm dying. Anyways, anyways, sorry. But this is an excellent usage of that format because each loop then service is is fully on display, without interruptions, and then cut to commercial, giving the viewer just again time to process it, but also being a good way to get that mandatory commercial break in there. Commercial breaks, I should say while still servicing the plotline. So another way this episode is well-constructed. Loop 2. Camera's different. This time, instead, there's a, lot of more, there's a lot more moving shots. So what I mean by that, and again, I can't fully demonstrate, but it's when the camera like starts over here and does a little bit of a pan as it's moving over here, and then the camera starts over here and does a little pan like this. It's, very, it's basically only one variance different from the first loop. But it is different. It is a different approach to the camera. And again, it starts to gradually get the idea that something's off. Getting the idea across to even people who aren't really paying attention to the camera work that things are different. So the second loop goes through. Obviously, again, re-recorded all new. I should point this out, by the way. This is the first time we learned Nurse Ogawa's last name, Ogawa. Um, or at least I think it's Ogawa. It might be the other name, which I didn't write down. But I just thought I'd point that out regardless. So we have a little bit of escalation. We once again have the poker game, and they're more on the more more deja vu. They're more predictive. Now, I want you to keep that in mind for later, by the way. And then they go to the Jordy thing, and I'm like, huh? And the Jordy thing starts to be more relevant. And then we once again go to her and the voices, and she's substantially more freaked out now. So she decides to call Picard. Nice touch, by the way. I mentioned how this isn't really a character vehicle. That being said, the scene between Picard and Crusher is gold. It is two very close friends, who may or may not be more than friends, but regardless are very connected to each other, who know each other very well, and they act exactly like that. Props to the scene. And of course, this is also the second mention of Aunt Adele. I told you I'd be pointing out little details. I love little details like this. Aunt Adele, if you don't remember, was mentioned back in Ensign Row by Picard for having come up with a recipe to, to fix something. I forget what it was there. But it was different than this. And so Picard is now sharing another recipe by Aunt Adele with Crusher to help her out. Little tiny strains of continuity. Huthor, I hope you're watching this legitimately because little strains of continuity like that are what helped elevate my enjoyment of a work like this. It's not mandatory, but... You it's, it's, it's brushstrokes, right? Even though people hate me for using that phrase, but I don't care because it's brushstrokes. So, big scene with Picard. Picard is mostly dismissive, and yet he's very Picard. This is probably nothing. But let's do a full analysis to look into this in the morning. That is so Picard, and I love that. And it's also credit, because too often in sci-fi, they will just kind of dismiss or ignore weird happenings like this when they should... Not. I mean, this is Star Trek, the Federation, Starfleet, and the Enterprise. Just going in levels of escalation. Of course something weird is going to happen, right? 
<sighs> I mean, not two episodes ago, they were replaced by alien spirit things, for God's sakes. So, of course, they're going to look into this. So, notice that the camera moves across the meeting quite a bit. And again, moving camera for the second loop. And the second meeting is, the first meeting, sorry, I didn't actually talk about this. The first meeting was basically all about the Tyson Expanse, or Typhon Expanse, excuse me, and how they're going to map it and chart it. And then there was a brief bit at the end about Crusher being weirded out. This time, the Typhon Expanse stuff is basically ejected, and it's mostly about Crusher talking about the thing that, you know, Picard had everyone look into. Then, then something interesting happens. We hit the crisis, and it's basically identical. Now, it is a new shot. They, the actors are repeating their lines. Credit to them to managing that. Doing four takes like that has got to be arduous. But I want to say one of the most interesting things about this episode is that each time the crisis happens, it plays the same way, and the people say the same lines with extremely minor variations. They're, uh, in the third loop, Riker says, huh, you know, what do we do differently this time, or something like that. In the fourth loop, Riker says something similar, and Picard hesitates, and obviously they get out of it in the fourth loop. But other than that, the crisis is always the same. And I started thinking about that, and I know this is probably me being an apologist, but this is a very well-constructed episode, and I don't mind reading into an episode that is very well-constructed. It has a high writer factor, I think. So... <clears throat> In my opinion, this is being done deliberately because there's two points being gotten across here. Number one, how many of you, I've talked about this before, how many of you have, are you, you yourselves or a family member or a friend or lover or whatever who is in either the medical industry or the military? I, of course, have family on both sides of that. Although at this point, I can't say that anymore because people are just retiring bit by bit over the years. But you get the point. I have had family in both branches. And one of the things that I was often told is that when a crisis hits, your brain just shifts into a completely different mode. And you're just dealing with everything as precisely and carefully as you can according to your training. And apparently this is on, on purpose that a lot of medical training specifically is designed to making sure that you can make very quick and very precise decisions under pressure. I point that out because I think that's the first point here that each of these people is reacting in the same general way, excuse me, in the same specific way, because the fact that this is a crisis, a red alert, ship's about to be destroyed, so their normal brain is disengaged and they're fully in professional mode. And that would make a lot of sense to me. The second point is a little more nebulous, but much more broad and braga. Fate. One of the interesting recurring threads of this episode is the glass. Beverly Crusher's glass. In all four time loops, the glass is shattered. Even when she deliberately goes out of her way to take effort to not shatter it, it is still shattered. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But there's an undercurrent of these events must happen. These events are patterned, is that the way I like to go. I don't, want, I don't want to use the word fade because that's actually kind of inaccurate. But they are patterned to happen. And no matter what, they're going to happen again because it's part of the pattern. I want you to keep that thought in mind, but that's my second purpose, or my second theory as to why they act the same. So the Enterprise is destroyed. <sighs> Loop three. Loop three does a lot more group shots, and Loop three tries to get as many people in the shot as possible rather than focusing on an individual person, with only a couple of exceptions. They also use a little bit of a personal cam every now and again and jostle cam. Now, if you don't know what I mean by jostle cam, um, then you haven't watched my Lord d'oeuvres videos. Jostle cam is when a human being is carrying the camera. And I don't know if you've ever carried a camera, but those are big and heavy and awkward. 
So it jostles. Makes sense. But that is a deliberate thing that some filmmakers would do. In this case, obviously, this was done to simply vary up the camera work to show how different this loop through was. Oftentimes it's used to show, like, the uh, first-person view, because a person is going to be like, you know, whereas, like, an alien might be more smooth, or maybe it's to show someone's having tension, or they're, they're losing their minds, or whatever. Basically, it is a tool, properly utilized, to help accent the scene. And the scene where Beverly is just nervously flitting around trying to, you know, as usual, cut the thing, you notice how this scene has completely changed from the first loop. The first time it was just a mundane Tuesday. Now she's freaking out the whole time because she knows something's up and she doesn't know what. And that vague, ominous dread is there and now is accented by the camera. I love Frake's camera work. I really do, if it's not obvious. So they're going through the, the cards, and this time they actually call the cards. And that just gets a little bit freaky for all of them. So this time we cut to Jordy, and we just basically skip forward to her being like Picard, come in. And Picard is there. Picard is brought in, and she explains what's going on with his visor. This is the first time we realize that the visor is directly connected to the plot. That Jordy is literally seeing some of the echoes of the previous incarnations or timelines, or however you want to think of that. Now, <clears throat> Crusher like I said, goes way out of her way to avoid breaking the glass, and then it breaks already. I point that out especially because it's also an excellent point of tension. It is an unspoken message to the viewer that despite her careful efforts to avoid repeating the same action, she did anyways. Thus getting across the idea to the viewer that they are trapped, that they are doomed, to put it into simplistic terminology. Now... Then they go ahead, this time she gets a recording of the voices, takes it, into, takes it in, they analyze it, and this is actually really important, really, because Data can listen to that and distinguish them. He, he, remember, this has actually already been established that he has the ability to listen to a large number of audio sources simultaneously and be able to pay attention to all of them rather than just one or two or three like we can. So he listens to all of them and puts that together. In short, the only reason this critical point of information is useful to the crew is because of data. Remember that. Now, then we get to the third meeting. You notice how, once again, we're going through the same beats each time, but each beat is expressed completely differently. Poker, Geordie, Crusher, and consequently voices, meeting, crisis, repeat. So this time the meeting is all about the loop and how they've basically figured out that they are repeating the loop. This is when they start to question themselves. Picard actually has a wonderful little bit where he, you know, they say maybe we should turn course, and someone says, for all we know, changing course could be what causes, and Picard says, no, we're not going to start second-guessing ourselves. I know this is going to sound strange, but I would do the exact same thing in Picard's position, although in my defense, I've had time to think about that, whereas he is simply a natural-born leader. Because that is, in my opinion, absolutely the correct call. If you do not know which actions will lead to which result, also known as everyday life, if you're thinking about it, then you should, in my opinion, behave as you normally would. In other words, just because you know something's going to happen in the future doesn't mean you suddenly start doing things differently. That's not how that works. And fiction has shown that many times as well. But you get my point? There's no second guessing at this point. Instead, you just treat it as if it is still a problem you have to solve, just like you would any other problem. Don't start second-guessing yourself. Don't start doubting yourself. 
deal with it. And I like that. So, they decide to use the Dekiana mission. And this is something that they'll basically pulse out to alter something, whatever, that will affect the Dekiana fields within the area. Okay, that makes sense. Now, once again, even knowing this, and even being... So, they know how to do this, and they have the technology to pull up this pulse. Now, that's important, because there's a pretty good chance that the crew of the Bozeman does not have that ability. We'll get back. We'll circle back to that. I'm making a point. Don't worry. But the idea here is that only because of the presence of data who will be affected by that, imprinted by this new pattern, is anything capable of being changed whatsoever. That is two times now that data is critical to solving this problem. So they start doing the thing and putting the pattern into them, and Jordy says, I wonder how many times we've done this before, and Crusher points out the obvious, and credit to her for the intelligence here. Do you feel like you've done this before? No. Me neither. I think that's a good sign. And she's right. The sheer fact that they, are, they don't have any deja vu whatsoever at this point in the cycle means that this is new. Now, we obviously know that, but it's a good way for the characters to be aware of that, too. So then the crisis happens, and there are only two variants in this crisis. One, Riker's Comet, which I mentioned earlier, and two, Data deciding to punch in the number three. Now remember, this is actually kind of important. This Dekiana mission thing is a little technobabbly, but once again, it's kind of a good implementation of technobabble, because what it is, is a technobabble pulse to accomplish a very understandable thing leaving a one word, just a few characters message, so that the few, so that Data can have this message, this word, patterned into his consciousness next time around. Which makes perfect sense, and actually lines up with them solving things. Which leads us to loop four. This is the pattern interrupted. This is the loop where everything kind of comes together, the finale loop. So notice this time the camera work is completely off the wall. Frakes just does all kinds of stuff with the camera. Large panning shots or getting the camera nice and underneath. As I break my chair here. Underneath. I'm not breaking it, don't worry. Underneath the people, you know, just doing all sorts of things to show that this is completely different this time around and really distending the camera work. He also uses the bungee thing. Now, I thought I, I said I'd mention that. It's actually really simple. But it's the kind of thing that makes perfect sense if you think about it. Basically, the idea is you got the crane, and you got the camera, and there's effectively some bungee cords connecting the two. And you might think, why would you ever do that? Well, it allows you to still be able to have semi-precise movements with the camera while still having it be kind of wooga-wooga. In short, you can't have a person do a top shot and have it be wooga and, and shaky or whatever because you can't get a person up there but you can get a crane up there. Unfortunately, he only uses like two shots down the whole episode, which is kind of a shame, but whatever. So, you remember how I mentioned, I, I, I'm sure you caught it, Data, I hope he's not stacking the deck. So here, Data stacks the deck. Everyone gets a three, and then everyone gets three of a kind. Now, <laughs> what's doubly funny is everyone's like, huh. Now this time, and notice how they kind of flip-flop things. In the third loop, we Crusher was like, huh, and then Picard was called in, and they start explaining the loop to him. This time, we see her and Geordi actually discovering this, and then we cut to Picard, who we didn't see last time, 
and him being really weirded out. I feel like, and credit to Stewart, of course, but he gets across very well just in his actions. No dialogue, zero dialogue. How weirded out he is by this book, like he, as if he's read it before. He skips forward a page and frowns, skips forward a page, frowns. Skips forward several pages, frowns, and he just looks back, and then he goes back to the beginning like... And there's just, again, no dialogue. He gets it all across there. So then Picard is caught, brought in, and this time, rather than having Picard brought into the loop, we cut in basically halfway through that. This then leads to Geordi and Data rather than Crusher. The third and fourth loops are my favorite loops of this episode because it's when they really start to stretch with what you can do with a story. It's the kind of storytelling I actually love. Multiple perspective storytelling. In short, we are effectively seeing similar to the same events happening each time, but the camera is changing position between three and four. So this time, we're with... If you remember last time, you know, after she recorded the audio footage, or listen to me, the audio footage, after she recorded the audio data, she called them up and they said, yeah, we just detected something weird. This time, we're with her... Well, excuse me, we're with them, Jordy and Data, detecting something weird based on the the number three thing and, and of course, their own scans of the matter. And then she calls in and says, hey, and then we see, yeah, we just detected something weird. It's just, it's nice to see the flipped perspective thing. And then we hear the glass break in the background. Now that's important. I swear, I'm building up to something. So then we have a great top shot of, of the meeting room, which is great. And, of course, the meeting is all about not only discovering what happened, but figuring out the message of what three means. Because, again, we already know all this, so they streamline most of it, cut to almost the end of the last meeting's meeting, and instead start focusing on the number three and how that's clearly a message being sent forward. After all, it's what I would do, which is great logic on the matter, by the way. So then, you know, the final crisis happens. There's, again, obviously some variance there. And then the episode falls apart a little bit. But I do want to mention one really great thing right at the end there. Riker says, how do you think we dealt with this last time? And Picard hesitates. It's the first time he hesitates. And there's just this moment of, like, almost resolute before he says, back us off, nice and slow. Because that's what he would do. But I love that human moment of doubt that he actually does second-guess himself before basically clamping down on it and saying, no, I'm going to leave this the way I always would. It's a nice touch. There's a lot of nice touches in this episode. Unfortunately, the ending is not one of them. So here's the thing. They were very close to making this episode actually make perfect sense. And they they didn't stick the landing. Right at the end... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of skip to the main thing they screw up. So they contact Captain Fraser. I forget his character name. And, uh, you know, Kelsey Grammer. And, you know, they say, hey, Bozeman... And the captain has no sign that anything is going wrong whatsoever. And that's the biggest flaw right there in the episode, in my opinion. Because it would make perfect sense if, as the Bozeman was repeating the loop and becoming more aware of it, just like the Enterprise was repeating the loop and becoming more aware of it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that, well then why didn't they do anything about it? They didn't have data. Think about it. Because of their much less advanced technology, they might not even known about the emission that they could have sent out, or any other ideas they could have done. They simply didn't have access to the tools, even if they understood their dilemma. Which kind of adds another horror element to things, too. Being aware of the time loop, and not being capable of doing anything about it. 
That's actually one of the more horrifying elements of Groundhog Day, at the point at which he has come to grips with the fact that he is stuck here, and he doesn't know how to process that, so he just kind of, you know, does whatever. At first, pretty horribly, but then he tries to improve as a person. You get the idea, right? Instead, he acts like he knows nothing, and that's just kind of torpedoes that idea. Funnily enough, there are several things that have continued this, including an entire novel. And I point that out because in one of those, I should have wrote down names, in one of those books, they posit the idea exactly as I did, that they knew about the loop, and they just couldn't do anything about it. Oh, excuse me. One of the other uh, books, and again, I didn't write down names, actually does the exact opposite, that for whatever reason they were completely unaware of the loop. Problem is, that's not consistent. That makes no sense. There's no reason, by, by all that we are seeing, all that we have perceived, that they would not be cognizant of the loop. Because remember, it's not just Data and Geordi who are affected by the loop. Everyone is. Picard is. Riker is. Geordi is. Worf is. Crusher is. Everyone involved who has any kind of substantial speaking lines is cognizant of the deja vu effect. So it makes perfect sense if the Bozeman would be in on the loop, too. This also leads to the uh, the fate thing I mentioned earlier, and I told you I'd circle back around to that. This, I think, is actually deliberate, and I do credit Braga for this point. The idea here is that once the pattern has been established, the, the, the break, the stall in space-time, there's no altering it unless something external to the circumstances is able to change it. Or, to put it another way, once you are in the loop, you can't change the loop per se. The only way to change the loop is to affect it outside of the current loop. This helps to explain why everyone is only capable of accomplishing the same things and each thing keeps happening, like the glass breaking and the Enterprise being destroyed. You cannot affect your current loop, only future loops. In other words, an external source to the loop. This then, of course, explains something and one of the bigger plot holes in the episode. Now, you can call me an apologist for this if you want. That's okay. But one of the bigger plot holes in this episode is as soon as they encounter this rift, the shield break, the, the, the thrusters, not even just helm, you know, typical helm control, but just the thrusters stop working. And I forget what else. They, they mention several things that all break. The ship just starts not working properly. There is no proper explanation in the episode given for why these critical systems just suddenly stop working. And the moment they break the loop, they start working again. However, based on that idea of patterning, on the idea that you cannot escape events happening because they've already happened that way, yeah, I know, temporal mechanics, it helps to explain why these, why these systems shut down and why the crew couldn't do anything different unless there was an external influence. In this case, the influence of the previous loop, basically, informing data of the thing. To me, that makes perfect sense, although I do have to point out one other major flaw in the episode. There's this, I've, I've mentioned the 44 seconds. The final loop takes substantially longer. It gets to like this certain point, and then Data slowly looks left, sees the pimps, slowly looks back, and even talks to himself, and then initiates the shuttle bay thing, which saved their life. That has always irritated me, ever since I was a kid. Like, it would make almost more sense if, and of course they didn't have the effects budget to do this, especially in this episode, which was very expensive, but it would almost have made more sense if they had had, like, events freeze, and what we're seeing is data processing at data's speed, like his eyes dart over. Everything else is frozen, basically. His eyes dart over. Huh. Then his eyes dart down. 
and then we hear his voice, not spoken out loud, this will not work, and then he, and then, you know, that would have worked a little bit better, but whatever. Can't do everything right, right? There's no such thing as a perfect episode. So everything's fixed, and they've been trapped for 17.4 days, roughly, whereas the Bozeman's been trapped, like, I think 87 years, something like that. I, I forget, I did the math at one point. I didn't write it down. It's also funny because the time he gives means it was in between Star Trek The Motion Picture and Star Trek Two. go figure. And the episode just kind of ends all of a sudden. It ends a little bit suddenly, and I kind of get why, because there's a lot of fallout here to be addressed, and they don't address any of it. In fact, in the show proper, the Bozeman is never brought up again. It's actually funny to me because the Bozeman was kind of a semi-popular thing to bring back for, you know, ancillary works for quite a while. Like I mentioned, two separate books covering it. I'm pretty sure it was in the comics as well. The Bozeman is even referenced over in Star Trek Online. Despite not sticking the landing at the ending, I do still think that this is an excellent episode that I enjoy tremendously. I hope you've endured my gushing about this, and I'm very curious of your thoughts on the various ideas and concepts, including my own theories on the matter that I've posited. Regardless, I'll see you next time.